and welcome to Let's Talk About Brand. I, of course, am your host, Christine Gritman. Now, we've all heard about conscious brands and how that can mean so many different things. It can mean that the product itself is environmentally better for you. It can be about manufacturing processes. It can just be connecting to a whole lifestyle. Jonathan Trimble and his co-founders at And Rising specifically work with conscious brands that are on the rise, startups that are building. And so today we're going to be talking about what does that mean? What is a conscious brand? Where does the consciousness of their process or whatever they're doing there that is conscious fit into their brand story? What do consumers want to hear? How much do they want to hear regarding the brand's processes and how it fits into their own self-identity as conscious consumers? And then finally, we're going to talk about the founders. Being a founder is always complete lunacy. Being a founder is a very intense life. So how does And Rising help those founders be a little more conscious about how they're building their brands without having it come at the expense of their own consciousness about themselves? How do you take care of yourself as the founder of a conscious brand? Are there extra concerns if you are a conscious brand versus a regular old profit-oriented type of founder? We're going to discuss all this and more here today on Let's Talk About Brand. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, if you've been following me, you know that I really care about the people behind the brands, not just their personal brands. I believe in keeping it real. Not a huge fan of like hustle bro culture. And so I'm very excited to speak to Jonathan Tremble today of And Rising because not only do they care about the companies that they work with at And Rising, they also care about making sure the founders are practicing the same type of consciousness when caring for themselves as they do with the social good they're doing with the brands that they are building. So without any further ado, let's bring Jonathan on. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to Let's Talk About Brands. Very well, nice to be here. <laughs> All right. And Rising. First, I would love it if you could just tell us a little bit about what And Rising is all about. I know that you are a B Corporation and that you work specifically with conscious brands. So let's define that first. What do what does conscious branding and conscious companies mean to And Rising? First of all, it's companies that are focused on the environment and are providing some sort of alternative that's more environmentally friendly or more regenerative than the current options that are available. If it's in food and drink, it'll almost be more oriented towards health and preventative health in some way. And then beyond that, it's simply products that support in, it could be mental health, it could be well-being, any consumer brand or tech really that's impacting better outcomes for the environment, better outcomes for health, better outcomes for personal well-being and happiness in the world. 
So overall, making the world a better place. Gotta love that. So was that always a focus for And Rising or did it develop over time? It developed over time. So originally we were 18 feet and rising, which is an advertising agency, primarily working with blue chip clients, some of which were global. So just in the independent creative agency in the usual way. And over time, we began to do more and more work for scale-ups and scale-up brands and startup brands were inherently coming to market with new consumer stories. And those consumer stories were usually around how to make more of a positive impact, observing some of the problems with incumbents and their scale and the increasing awareness of externalities that were coming from those brands. So it, it happened naturally over time. We then started to specialize around those brands. And then in 2016, we formed part of cohort one. So the first companies here in the UK to become B Corporation, which is a type of company that specifically has multi-stakeholder reporting. So we drive for profits, but we also drive for positive outcomes for the planet, people, the environment in general, et cetera. And it's a structure of company that reports across all of those different stakeholders, including employees, not just the financial ones. And so when we made that shift, we then at that point began to focus on brands that did that as well. And a really good portion of our client base are also B corporations. And then in other cases, they're simply brands that are experimenting with new ways of dealing with the problems of overconsumption and the fact that we live in a consumer story that fundamentally causes more harm than it does good. And then to 2019, we became Anrising, focusing purely on startups and scale-ups. And it was at that point as well that we adopted an investment model whereby we take a little bit of equity in some of those earlier stage companies as well. So part investor and part marketing services firm all around a thesis of positive impact brands. Positive impact brands. I love that. Now, have you noticed a shift and what consumers expect in that regard in terms of brand impact? Was that sort of a rising tide that you decided to hop in on? Or was that something that just came from you and your co-founders? Were you looking at the market or were you just looking at yourselves and saying, you know what, we've been in advertising this long. Let's do something different with it. Yeah, I think it was a bit of everything. I was beginning to enter a post-consumer era where everyone was starting to realize there's just a lot of stuff out there and we spend a lot of our time buying stuff and we buy too much stuff and a lot of that stuff ends up in the bin and not getting used. I think everyone just generationally started to notice their own patterns of overconsumption. But as far as a consumer trend line goes, awareness has never been higher, but actually ability to act and do things is as tough as ever. So we have a lot more awareness, but we don't necessarily have a lot more change. And some of that's to do with the fact that brands have done a super job of pushing what few green or sustainable credentials they do have mm -hmm. and using those to cast sunlight on the hold. And so I think what's happening now is a period of cynicism actually around sustainable brands and brands that say sustainable. And so in a way, we are looking for brands that have a sustainable story, but really we're looking for brands that have a sustainable business model of some kind, for example, refillable beauty or anything where the things that are getting made actually go back into circulation and get reused rather than consumed. And even if they biodegrade or destroyed and at some level, there's the very scary question as well of the real answer is less consumption, less products, yeah. less, less all of it, which is quite tricky when fundamentally your company and the brands and the founders are committed to growth. How do you reconcile that? How do you and how do these brands drive consumption of their brand and their products while also framing it as something that not only is a lesser evil, but that actually is making a perceptible difference in terms of waste and such? 
Yeah. So I think it is examples of business models where they're fundamentally regenerative or repairing. So there are just a bunch of new things out there that are directly impacting the issue. At the other end, then, it's things really where it uses less inputs, even if the story is fundamentally consumption. It fundamentally ingests less things to make that product, even though the cycle of buying, if you like, isn't any different. So in, in each case, you're just trying to find things where the impact is less at the level of comms and more at the level of how the product's formulated, what happens to it after you've finished using the product, or does the product itself bring people into jobs or repair things, or is it a product fundamentally brings preventative health so we don't have to rely so much on treatment, et cetera, et cetera. In some cases, I think it's a food brand or whatever that has slightly fewer bad ingredients in it, and it isn't really all that different. But at the other end, you have business models that are fundamentally regenerative and what they produce comes back around and gets reused. So every year, we're trying to steer further and further towards things that are primarily regenerative. And I suppose if I hold hope, it's that in 10 years' time, the proportion of regenerative business models that are championed by brands or that are brands is likely to be a lot bigger than it is today. And those that make lots of things and then we eat them, use them, buy too many of them and then throw them away will be more of a minority. So hopefully sustainability will be the rule rather than the exception. (laughs) A lot of these things aren't really like they sound sustainable now, but really it's just progress and Mm -hmm. we would have been doing things that were far more harmful in other generations. So I think that's the bit to always be a bit careful of with marketing and brand is because, and within case investing in new brands, is that it's tempting to think, oh, because we have a great story here, we have natural consumer demand, and therefore we can make money whilst we solve this problem. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a lot, it's going to be a lot harder than that. It's going to take a lot more resources than that to deal with it. So I think there's a lot of fallacy around, oh, as long as we consume the right things, we'll yeah. solve the problem when the problem is consumption itself. So I think acknowledgement of these inherent tensions actually and these contradictions is probably what's missing. And then if you mm-hmm. are aware of those and you do acknowledge them, you will inevitably steer towards what well, I myself am going to consume less. So that means products that last longer. So how do you ensure not only that your skeptical consumer base is going to realize that the brand is the real deal and that they're making an actual change here, but also yourselves as an agency. How do you make sure that the brands that you're working with aren't just talking the talk, but are actually walking the walk of that type of consciousness as a brand? Yeah, part of the B Corporation commitment, which involves looking at all the stakeholders. So one of the stakeholders is, of course, the client. And so one of the things that has to happen as part of that is essentially a set of pre-checks so that you are measuring and taking into account what each of those stakeholders is doing and what benefits or externalities they are shedding as part of the process. So a lot of it is around us understanding quite clearly where the supply chain. We ourselves don't have much of a supply chain. It's all, it's just people based out of an office. So Things aren't really traced to other companies or sub-suppliers, et cetera. But in the brand's cases, they are. And in in many cases, they're being manufactured by other companies and the brand is either the label on it or it's the marketing function of it. So it's really peering inside those supply chains. And then after that, it's really no more complicated than seeking the advice of those that are really studying the topics and getting their opinion. Because one of the things that gets really tricky is that you get a product that is seemingly better than what's available. But specialists will then disagree. 
as to whether that's the case or not, or how far that's the case or not. So if you take, let's just pick vegan dog food at the face of it, not having meat and all of the infrastructure required to produce cows and the methane, et cetera, et cetera. Through one lens, that's a kind of no brainer. But through another lens, animal welfare, nutrition experts, and even those that argue about CO2 emissions will say, yeah, the trouble is those, you know, how are you going to get the right nutrition though into dogs? And so vegan dog food might be good on the one hand, but on the other hand, we're highly concerned that the proteins and the micronutrients that they get from meat are better for them than the alternatives. And so you end up in these very difficult debates between specialists. So we have a kitchen cabinet of advisors and we try to just navigate as best we can based on what they say. But in the end, these are pretty complex issues. And so you just have to take the best decisions you can based on the intent of the founders, the intent of the brand itself, and the best you can gather from specialists in the area as to whether you're on the, whether you're on the right track or not. But there's no doubt we've had products that we've looked at that have said, this is the eco alternative. Mm-hmm. And people will then say it is because but the ones we're dealing with are so bad that this really is just like slightly less bad. It's not really an <laughs> eco alternative. Also, there's balance to everything. I don't know if you guys had the show The Good Place over in the UK, but in the US, it was essentially a morality tale and about what constitutes being a good person. And there's one character who's convinced that he has gone to the bad place because he drank almond milk after he learned how much water goes into almond farms. So he felt like that made him a bad person. I mean, there's no way to be truly pure here. So I'm sure that that kind of drives people a little nuts. And I'm going to talk about the people element in just a moment. But first, to tap off this, how do you show that they're actually a conscious brand thing? It's interesting that you mentioned the manufacturing processes, because that has become part of the brand story to a degree it never has before. Decades ago, you would never talk about your manufacturing processes or your sourcing or any of that stuff or how you ship product or any of that as part of a brand story. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't going to be something that the consumer really cared about. They just wanted a good product. They didn't care how it got to market. And now it's interesting to figure out how far back you go because consumers are interested in that stuff now. That's got to be a real shift for brands to go from only marketing the glossy final product to now, first of all, they want less gloss on the final product because it feels a little bit more, you know, authentic and because that gloss is not biodegradable. But then also they care about where it comes from, that story there. And that story also has a lot of capacity for bullshit. So how do you figure out the degree to which you include all of that nitty gritty in the story, because I'm sure, you know, there's a way you can certainly go overboard with that. It can be like, okay, I don't care about the name of the cow on the farm. Tell me about the product. So how do you figure out the degree of story, the degree of all of that operational stuff to go into when marketing and branding a conscious brand? In terms of buyers, the remarkable paradox is that Typically, what you'll see is a very high level of claimed sensitivities and care for the planet. But when the rubber hits the road and they go to buy, 
they transact on a value cost convenience basis and very few or far fewer will compromise on any one of those three for the sake of sustainability so you get this kind of you get this sort of like awareness action gap and it's partly because when you ask people about the environment everyone agrees that there's a problem but the inverse number think it's going to affect them personally so it's, yes there's a problem but it's not my problem and it's certainly not my problem to solve hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. It's the meat industry, for example. Yes, there's all this water involved. Yes, there's animal rights stuff. Yes, there's greenhouse gases, whatever. But is me going vegan going to do anything or am I drop in the bucket? So yeah, people know that these are issues, but in terms of bringing it home to them, how do you make sure you don't niche down too far into only the most hardcore with your messaging? We actually by and large tried not to lead on positive impact comms for that reason because we want our products to compete with the very best that are out there on their functionality first and particularly when we're thinking about investing we see a lot of brands seeking investment and that want help and they're going where the eco option but you get it there's a whole cohort of people out there that want to buy something more ecologically friendly we're going to say it's not really actually that isn't the case your product first and foremost has to be better and superior to what is currently available so We actually try to keep the marketing pretty close to home in that respect and also to deliberately avoid joining what is a complete sea of faux made up claims because in the end actually a lot of these things are debatable and it slightly depends which lens you look at it through and so it's almost better to steer clear of trying to come across as some sort of eco hero when actually to your point earlier the steps you're making are probably more common sense things that should be being done anyway and instead actually lead on this is a better alternative in its own right and then through that obviously those people are then buying into companies and brands and systems that work a bit better because whether if it's refillable beauty or if it's vegan dog food if that dog food isn't loved by those dogs that eat it and they don't see shinier coats healthier happier dogs then it doesn't stand a chance anyway we spent most of our time actually taking those positive impact brands and saying you can't win because you're the positive impact option you have to win because the product itself is better in some way also you want wide adoption if you're going to be making an actual impact with your processes with your products you can't just serve that niche audience you have to make sure that people who don't care at all <laughs> about the impact are yeah. also going to consume your product because it's a better alternative not just planetarily but also for them because everyone's looking up for number 1 
That's exactly right. And mm-hmm. those things do end up too niche. And then investors can't get the returns on them. And so the whole thing yeah. starts to become a kind of bubble, like a small bubble of fans that are really into it, but mm-hmm. you're not making any change. And if yeah. that's possible, and adding to the noise. So I think just in all the greenwashing and of all of it, I think just in marketing terms, take the temperature down on trying to project sustainable images all the time and durability is important you'll only need to buy this one once this one yeah you can repaired this one will go back in and do something else that's quite good after it's been used those stories i think are a bit more interesting than by the way it's the same thing ish but it's the eco one <laughs> uh, so yeah increasingly it is going to be about regenerative rather than sort of positive impact because all roads lead back to the consumer story being the problem and and rising even as a b corporation we're fundamentally operating within that storyline and so at some level these things can't actually check they are part of the problem all of them even the eco choices because it's all part of a story called your only job in the world is to consume and that's really the big problem wider than that it's it is about letting people know you're not just a consumer and you can do other things other than consume so that's one of the things that is it's tricky is that we almost end up saying we're not solving the problem. We're simply just aware <laughs> of it. And we're trying to steer towards the sort of better end of it. And inevitably, those startups and scale-ups need a reason for being. And those reasons for being are because they offer something better for the planet. But that it, all marketing and all brands are part of giving people the impression that that's their role in the world and their yeah. only role. We're all part of the problem, really. We're yeah. driving consumption. Once- Advertising is a form of pollution. So that's kind of it. There's no really, there's no way around that. I think what what the John Alexanders at the New Citizenship Project and the Jonathan Wises at the Comms Labs would say is they would say give people an opportunity to participate in the brand in some way that isn't just buying them. Mm. And what are the tools and opportunities and platforms you can give to them to do other things that remind them that they're not just there to buy? And actually, a lot of those things are you would call brand brand yeah. stuff. And brand is incredibly powerful. So there is a point at which it can square or you can square the circle by saying, okay, let's get them engaged in things that aren't buying stuff. Do you have examples of that? Are you talking about give backs, charity, or ways of participating in a larger movement beyond just buying the product? There are some kind of like really sort of, we'll do bad over here and then we'll all do good together over here stuff where <laughs> we'll gather their audience and go litter picking or give money to charity is a fairly clever, you know, we'll make all this damage here, but we'll do that there. So there's those levels of it, but there are more fundamental levels. Like John advocates for crowdfunding in the sense that actually being shareholders and being able to go to AGMs and make 10 company decisions. I think that's really where he's headed with it. It isn't, Hey, let's just do some beach cleaning together on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. It really is at the level of, do they have any agency? Do they have any say? Is it a lifestyle? Are you just purchasing a product or are you embracing a lifestyle? Which, of course, comes back to brand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a naughty little puzzle. But I think as long as you're aware that, I guess we're very conscious that we're not the solution if you start from there. Because I think that's where the delusion and the kind of dark side of it rear its heads. Mm -hmm. It's utterly realistic at all times that more products is always more of the problem. It must be a really interesting collection of founders then, because the thing is, founders of companies, especially brands that are growth-oriented, it's always an interesting sort of person who decides to put a new product, a new company, a new brand out there into the world. But when there's this consciousness element to it also, there must be 
I'm sure that it's a mixed bag where some people have this sense of mission and maybe lose sight of the fact that, well, you're still selling a product. And I'm sure there's other people who come at it from the other end who they've got this great product and they decide to hop onto the consciousness bandwagon because it'll be good for the brand. I'm curious about how that tends to shake out with what you've seen with founders. You don't have to talk about your specific clients, but you operate in that world. I'm sure you see the competitors as well. How do the founders tend to differ from ordinary founders when it comes to conscious brands that you've noticed? There are definitely some that are just brilliant at PR. And when you're raising money and when you're trying to get an early stage brand out there, that kind of skill is pretty effective. But they are total believers in everything they're doing as a solution. And so those people, actually, we end up tending not to work with them. We're not those kind of people ourselves because it requires a real suspension of disbelief around some of the things that you know. So there definitely is that there. This is a way to gain traction. I'm doing the Lord's work join the crusade or or you're a non-believer and we we don't want to talk to you you're not part of the world that we believe in kind of thing most of the founders are actually frustrated by some sort of category injustice so there'll be something happening in the category not so much the planet that they're frustrated by so something in the manufacturer or something they're not telling the consumers or a cost that's laced in that shouldn't be there and so it's more that that they're frustrated by so it will be in the beauty industry it will be the hidden tons and tons of new products that simply end up in landfill that never get discussed. And so it's things like that, that they are like, if people really knew what went on, they would think differently. And I think that is true. If they did, if they really stopped and thought about it, they would. And some of these, some Netflix documentaries and things like that have done that kind of spotlight into the issue, I think has resulted in people making changes around what they choose to buy or don't buy and what they do. It's just most people don't have the time to deep dive in that way. And they don't know what to trust either and who's telling them and so on and so forth. So it's more category injustices that they're frustrated by than it is, say, like a wider moral good or or things like that. And as you pointed out, supporting a brand is an easy way to feel like you're doing something, which makes sense. We are talking before about how brand can connect to wider lifestyle and it can connect to a sense of self-identity too that's a huge pull huge in branding it's i support this brand and here's what that says about me as a person now to continue with the founders track i know that at and rising you're also working with founders on their own well-being and their own lifestyle because of course we know that the startup lifestyle is crazy, is hectic, and we've all been inundated with those kind of hustle bro mentality things. And a lot of founders feel they need to do that. I think hopefully that's easing a little bit now that the internet has turned upon those hustle bros. But I think especially when it comes to conscious branding, I would imagine there's a weird sort of feeling because as you said, we're doing the Lord's work here. So I'm sure that can be a bit extra draining. It's not a job. You don't shut it off. And no founders really shut it off anyway, no matter what they're doing or what they're selling. But especially for consciousness, uh, people in the consciousness space, people in the making the world a better place space. What unique challenges have you seen them have regarding making sure that they're taking care of the environment of themselves and their yeah. well-being? And how does And Rising work with them on that sort of thing, making sure that they're not just making the world a better place, but that 
they're able to be in a good place in the world as well. Yeah. I mean, they're very linked and empathy of the founder as a general outlook on life or capability in life obviously directly flows into empathy in the business. And exactly to your point, the role model that we are given of founders just isn't that. They're not very, in fact, they're psychotic. It's almost cool to be this sort of psycho. And we're making TV shows about them and laughing at them, but they are nonetheless still held up as this is what it means to be a founder. And I, I think there is some change and acknowledgement going on there. So that's one part of it. In inevitably, people that are around these other slightly more soulful products aren't really like that prototypical personality type. And so they're looking for other places that they can almost express their own ways of being founders and not get ruled out by investors who likewise are incredibly self-interested. Founders themselves have other stresses as well, which are mainly to do with two specific things. Once you launch, there are two things happening. One is, like any creative act, there's a profound amount of that person in that company. And so whether it does well or badly, it's very hard not then to take as a direct reflection of you, the person, at, it, at your very core. Because exactly like a creative act, it's something very personal that's come out and is being expressed in the form of a company. It's not like working for a company where you can say, oh, it's the company, it's not really me. You and the company then suddenly take on the same identity. Now, they don't have to, but the typical kind of mental strain that happens is that me and the company are the same thing. And so the bad things that happen, and they do happen, like every startup scale up basically has nine things for every 10 go wrong. That's just how it works. So that's, it's almost like me as a person is nine times out of 10 not succeeding. It's quite a difficult sort of mental cycle that founders go on. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is financial. And I think they go really closely together because there is no stress like running out of money. As soon as there's money problems, the psychological stress around you, because it's survival, It'll drive a, a survival instincts around, am I fundamentally going to be able to look after myself? And even if actually you're drawing a salary, you have some funds in the background, your mortgage isn't affected or whatever, a company running out of money still has the same feeling as you running out of money or it running out of money and your people's salaries and other people that are dependent on that company. So those are two very specific forms of stress. And because the failure rate is so high, it follows to say, if founders were handling that stress better or weren't necessarily gluing themselves and their identity in that way. So noticing that, we have started to look at combining like a scale-up school that helps educate founders, particularly at their early stages, with like yoga and breathworks and spending time in the countryside and learning how to surf and sound baths. And so in September, we're running a retreat for founders and marketers to put together the two things, do a bit of marketing and scale-up planning, hear ideas from different brands, learn best techniques, best practices, that kind of thing, but also learn about breathwork, do a bit of yoga. It's staged out in Kabila, Cornwall, so you'd be out in the wild with fires and campsite fires with conversation and processes like letting go and vision and surrender and flow and spending time in nature. And all of those things serve to increase empathy. And there's no doubt then that at some level that will flow back into the brands and how they act and how they behave and what kind of products they put out and their own that it will affect the relationship between the brands and the and the world as well so that's a experiment that we're running in september for the first time so keen to see how that goes absolutely my goodness that's part of the process that's changing part it's not just the manufacturing of the products 
It's the manufacturing of the brand by the people who, you know, you want to make sure that they are sustainable as well. Sustainable wellness for well-being. All right. This has been fascinating, Jonathan. Thank you so much for being here. I would love it if you could tell the folks at home where they can find you, why they should find you, and what they will find there. Oh, my gosh. You will unfortunately find me on LinkedIn and nowhere else. I speak infrequently a couple of times a month on all things brands, marketing, and tech. So there's usually some little bits of insight that we're picking up from the front lines of what we're seeing. We process, gosh, 10, 20 new startups a week. We're running tons of media experiments all the time. So we're across all the sort of latest dashboards and things. So in my content feed, you'll see little snippets coming from that stuff that we're picking up. Please do reach out if you're interested in some of the crossovers and the blurring of worlds that I've mentioned in today's podcast. But we're always keen to hear about new and better ideas that are consumer brands and tech and always happy to share what we know about those things as well if you want to link in with me. Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much for being here, Jonathan, and for talking to us about conscious branding. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for joining us today for Let's Talk About Brand. Whether you are listening on your podcast player of choice on the Adweek Podcast Network, or if you're watching the video podcast on YouTube. Either way, I am here every single week talking to another guest expert about another element of branding. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk About Brand, part of the Adweek Podcast Network and Acast Creator Network. This podcast was produced by Christine Gritman, executive produced by Al Manorino and John Heil, and edited by Christine Gritman. You can listen and subscribe to all of Adweek's podcasts by visiting adweek.com slash podcast. Stay updated on all things Adweek Podcast Network by following us on Twitter at Adweek Podcast. And if you have a question or suggestion for the show, send us an email at podcast at adweek.com.